soundtrack. Welcome to On the Verge of Podcast. Here we'll explore the world of politics and policy and focus on how tech companies can navigate the politics of disruption. Here are your hosts, the founders of Verge, Josh Secker and Scott Gerber. Josh, we're back. The second episode of On the Verge of. Uh, The first one went great. We had a few listeners, my mom, your mom, a few other folks. Uh, What do we got for our second episode? For our second episode, we have a historic first for us, an actual guest, Sean Garrett, who was the first head of communications of Twitter. I think we had a pretty fascinating conversation with him about Twitter when he first started back in 2009, one of less than probably 100 employees, and its maturation over the two plus years he was there, and his perspective on the Elon Musk takeover and the future of Twitter. I got to say, it's one of the most interesting conversations about Twitter that I've heard. So I hope everybody takes a listen and let us know your feedback. Thanks very much. Enjoy the conversation. Sounds true. Well, it's a big day for us, uh, Scott. We're, We're welcoming our podcast first ever guest, Sean Garrett. Um, For those of you who don't know, Sean is actually on the Verge family tree. He's one of the godfathers, um, having co-founded 463 Communications. I worked with Sean starting back in 2006, and he was a first adopter of social media. You just need to see that his Twitter handle has only two letters at SG. He went on, actually left left uh, 463 and became the first head of communications for Twitter in 2009. Today, Sean's leading a new venture, Mixing Board, which is a community of brand and communications leaders that share knowledge with each other and organizations uh, allow organizations to benefit from ex- accessing members' expertise, experience, and mentorship. We couldn't think of a better guest today than Sean to provide some perspective on the current situation at Twitter and to discuss his thoughts on Elon Musk's acquisition and the challenges that lay ahead. Welcome, Sean. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, great to be here, Josh. Good to see you, Scott. How are you? How are you guys doing? Good to see you. We're uh, doing good. I have one question for you before we before we dive into this. Is that can what is the what is the FCC limits on swear words on this podcast? <laughs> this is not a FCC regulated activity, so you can swear away. Uh, I think there needs okay, to be good, I think there needs to be listeners for the today. FCC to care about. Yes. There needs to be <laughs> listeners for the FCC to care about. Um before, so we really want to talk to you about Twitter today, but before before we talk about Twitter, um we did want to ask you, you know, one fundamental question that you see. Um what what do you what do you see leaders and organizations getting right today in technology and kind of what do they get wrong? Uh, in technology specifically, or uh, from a technology, from a communication standpoint, regarding for tech companies, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the interesting thing about the technology world is that it, it, there a lot of the talent, like a lot of the communications talent, has gone into the to, into the technology world, whether they came from Washington D.C. 
whether they were brought up within kind of the technology world in California mostly. And so we're, we're already seeing a lot of leaders who have worked in and around strong communications people. So in many ways, like I think the technology world from a communications perspective does communications better than, than many sectors, um, but there's still some gaps, right? And I think one of the gaps that, you know, the irony of, you know, me co-founding 463 with Tom Galvin and Jim Hawk way back in 2002, 2003, is like, you know, we we're kind of ringing the, ringing the bells and saying, hey, this whole like Washington DC thing is important. This whole policy thing is important. And um, you, maybe you guys should pay attention to this. And, and I think certainly um, people have kind of dealt with that reality. I mean, you know, Josh, when you started at 463, I don't even know, Google may have had one person in Washington, D.C., right? And now that's a completely different world. So, like, the, just think about the difference between now 2022 and 2006, 2007, um, in kind of like that technology Washington time. That's crazy. But every single generation that comes up in this, in this technology generation that comes up kind of forgets about this kind of thing. And so I still think there's lots of uh, awareness that needs to be brought to the fore when it comes to policy communications. I still think there's, there's so much more sophistication now when it comes to internal comms, when it comes to uh, content content strategy and the like, but policy communications for for a lot of newer companies still seems to be a bit of a a blind spot. Um, you know, mostly just because for all the same reasons that existed in two thousand three. Because usually, typically, it's not a thing you do until you have a problem. But the the real opportunity, you know, and I'm you know preaching to the choir here is less about asking, more about education, and especially as as we're now moving, like you know. So many of these new companies are climate tech companies who are moving into regulated industries. And so there's huge opportunities to use like the policy world as, as, uh, as a vector for kind of just general education. Right. General education and also generating business as well. Yeah, exactly. Great. So, you know, we brought you on here though, to talk a little bit about Twitter um, wanted to see if initially you could just provide a little perspective on what did the company look like when you first joined um, in 2009? What was the size, the priorities? It was converging on around like about, you know, we we're going from, I first started consulting with Twitter kind of earlier in the year in 2009. I think when I first started consulting with Twitter, there was like 70 employees by the time I think I officially became an employee, there was like 150. Um, and uh, it, I would just say it was like, uh, you know, we were pretty idealistic. Um, we were, you know, I walked in the door. It, it was a weird job for a first time comms person because when I walked in the door and first started working there, one, like there was zero infrastructure. So like, you know, it's like press list. No, there's like nothing. Um, but the company had already been on the Oprah Winfrey show. They had already like, you know, be on, they're on CNN, like, you know, and helping like, you know, deal with like the Iran elections and, you know, there's things happening in Egypt, like that, that was like Twitter was getting, you know, front page news on. So like Twitter was already like a household name, like in London, 
New York, Washington DC, San Francisco, Japan, Tokyo. But, but it was like, you know, but again, like it was just completely like it's operation that had no structure. So when I walked in there, I was like, we got a lot of work to do. Like there's a lot we need to take care of here. And, uh, uh, and so it really became about like, how do we build this thing out and how do we make this make a Twitter sustainable, but also communications and marketing function sustainable while we're also dealing with like inbound that's coming from around the world at every moment of the day. Sean, did you, yeah. Back then, did you really see the vision of it as the public square for everyone or was it more of sort of a micro blog for influencers? What would take us back uh, then? And you, you, that's a very painful question because like I would get constantly asked by like this, like, you know, the person who became the CEO after the CEO who was there when I first started was like, how come Kara Swisher keeps on calling this a microblog? We're not a microblog. Um, and so the, there was like this perennial question with Twitter, which was, what is Twitter, right? And I think, frankly, that was always the hardest question to answer, which is pretty ironic, you know, given the simplicity of the service. Um, uh, the town square kind of theory came a bit later. Um, there was actually like um, tension around that time around whether Ev Williams was the CEO at the time and, you know, whether Twitter was a more of an information network um, uh, and less of like this kind of town square. And what I mean by information network is um, a uh, just a connective tissue between all the different forms of information that exist on the planet. And those could be individuals, they could be media entities, they could be governments. Um, and so it takes us kind of more into like a utility function and less of like this, you know, veritable town square where anyone could go up and speak up and talk and, uh, and the like, um, I think the town square was more of a visual, but the information network, I think actually is more closer to like the original founding of what this thing was. That's interesting. But how did the company view its role? vis-a-vis the protection though of free speech at that at that time uh people like to say like we were the free speech wing of the free speech party like which was kind of thrown back into our face at one point i think we were really naive honestly um we had a lot of theories and basically the, the bottom line theory that we had was um was that humans are good like humans, in the end, humans will win out. And like, yes, people will say untruths and bad things online, and that's always happened online. But given the scale and the reach of Twitter, like we will actually penetrate deeper beyond kind of the chat room, kind of like all the different things that happen in typical, you know, uh, discourse online. And we're going to actually extend out into humanity so deeply that we will expose like the good of humanity and that will win out and the truth will win out and like the truth will correct itself online. And I think that was a beautiful thing to believe in, but you know, the reality is that we were all like, you know, relatively well off, um, white, like, you know, upper middle class type people who are well-educated in the United States. And so we all kind of believe that people like us, like who obviously we're seeing all these things, like, you know, um, you know, all the goodness of Twitter, um, our experiences became very different than like the experiences of women on Twitter, or the experiences of people with different races on Twitter, or the experience of people in different countries on Twitter. 
and and we were pretty blind to that early on and we were pretty blind to kind of uh not you know we had a trust and safety team super early and I, people don't give twitter credit for that but we had a very strong like that was like half the company early on was the trust and safety team and so they were very thoughtful about it and very considerate um but given the scale and the breadth and the depth and how fast twitter grew there was a lot of blind spots that we that were there and then as we evolved the product, like some of those things exacerbated kind of those blind spots over time. And so now looking back to your time there, is there anything that you would have done differently or advised differently uh, to the leadership at the time? Um, it's a great question. I think that, you know, we were too focused on, um, and I think we all, it was like, all the, it was like none of these things were mysteries back then. It's just a matter of like how we might have typically executed. There was like, and there was boundaries too. It was like how much the product can do, how much we need to evolve and like what countries we wanted to go into, for example. But I think like a very like tangible example of things we could have done differently was just use one example um, is that black Twitter was very much a thing in the early days. Um, and we were really slow to it um, because we we're a bunch of white guys and, and white women, but like mostly many guys in the leadership team. And, and I think us not understanding the culture of Twitter fast enough, not understanding the different arising cultures fast enough and not helping them and enabling them to kind of really support kind of these new groups that were using Twitter in different ways. Like I would have spent more time working on the culture and the psychology and the sociology of like, like what Twitter could be outside of the bubble that we're in. And this gets to where we are today with the Elon Musk, but like Twitter is very much about your own bubble. Right. And, and so as a company, we kind of like, you know, we didn't go fast enough to penetrate other bubbles and really understand that and explain that for other people. And then also support and celebrate those bubbles and celebrate kind of who is doing what there. And then also trying to bring the different groups together in more tangible ways. Um, we exacerbated bubbles in many, in, from many perspectives. Um, so I think, I think being more thoughtful about that, being more inquisitive, um, like thinking through really the sociology of versus dealing with, you know, we did a lot with like mediation and like, remediation, but, but that was reactive. I think being pro more proactive into like how people can better communicate and better use the product and get more out of it. And like, you know, before they ever get to a point of like dealing with abuse or harassment. That leads us to today after a $44 dun, dun, dun. acquisition. Yeah. Um, I think this may be a loaded question, um, but sure. do you think uh, Elon Musk is a, being a responsible steward of Twitter so far? LOL, Josh. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, he's a responsible steward of the thing that is his now. Like he bought it. Like, you know, like this is he owns it. Like he could do whatever he wants to do with it. I don't think like, I don't, I don't, I don't I'm not sure like being a steward of anything like, it's kind of irrelevant, right? Like, is he has he completely 
blown up like what was kind of potentially good about Twitter? Yes. But like it's, it is his thing and it is his toy, whether we like it or not. Um, so kind of, you know, I have plenty of opinions about it and I think like about the direction of what he could do and what he shouldn't do, but you know, there is no responsibility on his behalf to like extend like the history of Twitter or what Twitter was before to what he is doing now. But that, that sort of is the, the point. Um, Twitter has really become a public trust over the the past decade and it's relied upon by policymakers, individuals, cultural leaders. And in a few short weeks, he has changed that trust relationship between the platform and the people who use it. Um, you know, clearly you have questions about that, but what do you think is the most damaging thing that he's done so far? I mean, by far, like completely blowing up the kind of trust and culture that was built over many years of, with employees. Um, and, um, and I mean, it starts there, right? And um, I don't need to explain like the power of internal communications and culture to fellow communicators, but like, you know, this Twitter, the, the, the untold story of Twitter, um, there's been plenty of stories told about the like, founder drama of Twitter, like leadership drama at Twitter. Like this has existed for a long time that predates Elon Musk. Like it goes back to my time, right? Right. Like I had a very Shakespearean environment, like with different founders there, you know, I had, you know, I had six different um, bosses in two years. Right. And it was always insane. Um, but that said, everyone dealt with that insanity within Twitter as employees, but people stuck around and they chose Twitter where they could have even got paid more because they really believed in the mission. They really cared about like what Twitter could be and what it represents. Um, they cared about each other as employees. They cared about their teams. It was very much of a, the kind of culture that almost any company would want and would desire to have, and like would spend a ton of money to like attain. Uh, but Twitter always had that from day one and, and it, it really extended out from that first group of, you know, 50 people to all the way up to 7,000 people. So like, it's been really remarkable to tap into kind of people who work there like in the last couple of years about how consistent that culture has been and like how much they believed in like in each other and working together and meeting goals. And these people worked late. They pushed, they did all these things, but they didn't do it because one person was shaking his fist. They did it because they cared. And um, so that was blown up in three weeks and done in a willy-nilly way and done in like an aggressively kind of terrible way, um, which I just think is like the biggest waste. It's like the dumbest thing out of all this. Like, why not like be more thoughtful about that process? Why not like dig in and understand more what each team does? Like, why not? Like, why, you know, I understand ripping the bandaid off, but like, you know, that, that there's a lot of bleeding that's, that's happening now because of the way, the way he's treated employees and the way that like that's gone down. Um, you know, so uh, that's, that's the biggest thing. And then that bleeds out, you know, so to speak into users. I mean, certainly next into advertisers, you already seen Apple leave as an advertiser. I mean, Apple who spent almost $50 million on the platform in Q1, which is no small thing. 
like literally just like step off the platform, say, screw this. And then, you know, and then you have a lot of advertisers who are pausing, looking at this and questioning it. And then you have like, you know, Hey, just random senators like Ed Markey, you know, saying, you know, what is going on here? Like this, what's, what's happening. And, you know, Ed Markey has oversight over, you know, some important things that was in Elon Musk portfolio, you know, whether it's space or technology or the internet. Right. And so uh, it's just so many unforced errors, um, you know, uh, that are really hard to fathom. Where do you see Twitter a year from now? You think, you think Elon Musk sees this as a shiny object and he'll lose, he'll lose attention to it in, in a short amount of time when it, as he realizes how difficult it is. Uh, it's a great question, Josh. I think that it's certainly like, you know, he does seem to move from thing to thing. Like, I mean, when's the last time you heard him talk about like the boring company, for example, and like in tunnels and hyperloops and things like that. Um, you know, he seemed, you know, he did that for a point. Uh, I think like, I think a big question will be like how like SpaceX seems to be operating fine. Right. And because he's got a strong leader there. Um, but the question is like, how much is he going to need to spend on Tesla? Like, is that going to be an issue moving forward? Like, are any like quote unquote liberals slash Democrats like around the world or, you know, like is, is he completely tarnished like the Tesla brand where he needs to like go in there and do some stuff. So I think there's a lot of external factors that will affect how much time he spends on Twitter. But like the reality with Twitter is that it's not going to get easier. Like the, this is, this is a spiral. And I think the only way out for him with Twitter is to turn it into something that it's not currently. And I think that's like kind of the, you know, the spoiler on all this is that, you know, Scott, you mentioned like, you know, Twitter has built like this public trust and it's been this thing and people like have become to rely on it, et cetera. I think the sooner people get their head around the fact that Twitter is not really Twitter anymore, maybe just Twitter and name only and like core technology only, but now it's something else. That's a different thing, maybe with a different world, like different community or different technologies. And he evolves it into something slightly different. like, you know, goes deep into like, you know, encrypted messaging or, you know, things like that, for example, um, it could be more like a signal slash like, you know, WeChat type app um, and less of a communications network. Um, but I think his only way to like, to make it less difficult for himself is to really change what it is. So people's expectations of it are not what their expectations of Twitter was in, you know, pre Elon Musk. So put yourself in his shoes or in his head. What do you, you know, obviously he's ready to shake up the snow globe and, and turn things up upside down. What do yeah. you think his intention is? Um, what is his, the method to his madness? Um, Cause he's clearly trying to do something that was not clear to the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of like saying, you know, what was Trump's grand strategy when he became president? Right. You know, I mean, I don't know. Is there one, right. It's, um, the I think his method to his madness is that um, is more madness um, is one, uh, but two is 
he kind of just views Twitter again through his own little his own little thought bubble perspective. He I mean, he is in like this right wing bubble on Twitter. He clearly has like this perspective on like quote unquote wokeness and kind of like you know all the bad social justice stuff that he thinks is infringing on you know hashtag free speech um and so he i think he genuinely thinks that if he can change the discourse on twitter and make it you know more uh open and accessible to all sides which to him is more kind of like obviously the more the the right wing kind of perspective that he espouses currently um then then he feels like he's done some sort of job right but obviously it doesn't end there right that that is like not an end game thing maybe it is an end game thing but like you know it's that's i think his near-term view and i think maybe that's like as far as he's thinking so i think there's like this near-term view and then maybe the long-term view is like this thing becomes some some sort of super app that like is highly monetizable where you can put up like videos and it has porn and it has like, you know, you can do e-commerce on it and send encrypted mess- messages and, you know, it connects to your bank and it has a payment system and it's connected to crypto and blah, blah, blah. Like it does everything. Like it's the internet. Um, maybe that's his long-term thing and someone whispered that in his ear or he believes it. Um, but I don't think that's like a, I don't think there's like, I doubt there's a presentation somewhere that lays out that plan. Well, I know he actually had to get a lot of people to invest in this. You know, this is, by the way, like, you know, he has a lot of like serious investors who have like kept their money in this thing. And there had to be like something that was presented to them that would make them feel like this is a thing. But, uh, you know, we'll see. We've seen Silicon Valley make bad investments before, too. Yeah, uh, some of the same people made some other investments recently that, you know, maybe seems pretty questionable. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I guess kind of our last question is, do do we rely too much on Twitter for it to fail? You know, it's not just the town square now. It's it's even, I mean, used by local, all, nearly probably every state and local government as a kind of disaster mm-hmm. management ser- communication service. Or um, could you see an alternative, and that can could take significant market share from it? I mean, I I, I feel like we. I mean, it's a scary question because I think the answer is yes. We do rely on it like a, quite a lot as a society. Um, I mean, you know, like if an earthquake happens, like the first place I go is Twitter, right? You know, I mean, like that is that. It's, I don't want. I don't want to like have an earthquake happen and go to Twitter and like have some like you know, crazy bullshit spewed at me. Like, you know, I want, I want basic facts, like, right. Um, so yeah, that is a little bit scary. And I think there has to be some, I think there, that middle ground has to be met there, like where that basic information and basic facts, like have to still like exist there. But, but yes, like I think the, the example over time is like, I mean, I just think we on the internet, Anytime people have gone over-reliant on a single platform, like that's never turned out well, right? And I think that's going to be, unfortunately, the case with Twitter, um, you know, right now. And I think there could be 
alternatives that pop up. I've already seen, you know, I'm on two of them right now. I'm on Mastodon, I'm on post, you know, news. Um, but you know, it's kind of crickets. It's kind of boring, honestly. Um, it's, but it's early days. Like, and I, and there's like, you know, I'm on alumni slacks, you know, or Twitter, ex Twitter employees. And there's lots of talk about other alternatives that could pop up, but the network effect of getting every single, like you just said, state, local government around the world on some sort of network, similar network, like that takes a lot of work. Like that's a lot of like, I mean, or like a lot of buy-in and a lot of like, you know, trust over time. So you just don't like come up with some alternative service and expect things to change overnight. I think what happens probably is there's just going to be different services for different utilities. I think there'll be a bunch of different Twitters that will pop up. And they'll look different. It'll be kind of like cross a Twitter and Reddit where, you know, Reddit is like very kind of like subject matter focused, obviously, and like can go deep into niches. And I think like, you know, you may find like more of a sports Twitter or an entertainment Twitter or a public, you know, or a government thing or something like that, where you're getting real time information um, and, uh, and you're easily able to access it and get perspective but maybe on like different subject matter and maybe that's like divided or bifurcated more than what Twitter is currently, which is just all the things all at once, all the time, which is, which is frankly overwhelming in the first place. Okay. Last question. Look into your crystal ball. One year from today is Elon Musk still CEO and owner of Twitter. I say yes. I mean, things move fast in this world. Um, but it would take a lot to unwind kind of all these things right now. Um, and it would take a serious backpedal. I think he's every day he commits himself more to kind of his vision, his perspective on Twitter, the product and Elon Musk, the, the guy running Twitter. Um, so it would take some really, something really dramatic to happen in order to change that in one year. Now, three years, five years, like, uh, that's, that is, I have, I mean, I kind of would bet against, I would take the under on that, I guess, but the, um, I just don't, see, yeah, as a long-term play, I don't see how it fits within his like long-term portfolio. Um, but listen, I never expected Elon Musk to like, you know, who expected Elon Musk to be CEO of Twitter in the first place? Like a year ago, this would be crazy, right? So I expect more crazy. That's like the only thing I can guarantee is this, this will get crazier and, um, and it will not be boring. Um, and there'll be a lot more kind of secondary effects. Like we haven't even seen kind of many of the secondary effects that will come out of this. Like what, what does it mean not to have a communications team, right? Like literally zero communications teams. What does it mean to have like a bare bones skeleton kind of policy team? What does it mean to like basically fire almost every um, uh, like, you know, moderator, like, you know, consultant uh, or contractor? Um, what does it mean to operate in places like in Asia and uh, Africa and, you know, across, you know, Eastern Europe and in Russia with like very little like kind of like policy structure and human beings dealing with pol policy makers? Like, those those topics and issues like have not been exposed yet. So my guess is like we're going to see the secondary effects really kind of like have a 
big impact on kind of like how people perceive and use and think about Twitter, like in the next six months. And they'll be really curious to see what the course corrections are. That's great. Well, Sean, um, enough about your past. Let's just talk about your future for a second. Um, you know, you, you, you recently launched Mixing Board. Um, I think that was born out of the early stages of the pandemic when you provided, a, you know, really a great resource for technology communications professionals creating a, it was initially just a bare bones Slack channel for people to kind of share yeah. ideas at a time when people were siloed at home and offering, you know, a, a literal sounding board for people. So kind of what's, what's the proposition now for mixing board and kind of how's it, how's it going for you? Well, mixing board is a community now of about 200 communications and brand marketing leaders. Um, and it's a community where these folks come together and they kind of help each other out and provide advice and perspective. And Josh, you know, what you're referred to, I also, there's a community called comms unity that I started right at the end of the beginning of the pandemic, which has more like 500 people in it. Um, and, uh, the, the whole idea of, of mixing board is, there's a few few principles around it. One is like I want to raise the value of the comms industry, and also the people who do the work mm -hmm. in comms. Um, and and so, in order to do that, we need to like be really thoughtful about what our jobs are, how we approach it, and like and they learn from each other. Like it should be a team sport. Um, two, we need to like be able to educate um, the people who buy comms, like the the venture capitalists, the the founders, the CEOs about how to properly use it and utilize it and how to bring it to board bear. And then three, we need to like help and teach kind of people who are rising stars who are evolving in the industry um, and, and kind of give them perspective on like what, what to do and most importantly, what not to do. So that's one side of it. And then the other part of it is like, I would, you know, get all these calls from CEOs and founders and, VCs and they would always ask, Hey, Sean, can I pick your brain? Can I pick your brain? You know, can I get some advice? And I'm like, dude, you're like worth 10 times more than me. Like, you know, sure, but sure. And, um, and I would like spend an hour talking to them and I would just kind of like let it fly and like, Oh my God, this is the best strategy. I, I didn't even know I could like think about comms this way before. Thank you so much. Click. And then they would be gone and I would not get paid for anything. And, and there would be nothing that would come out of it. It's some, maybe some like, you know, karma points and good vibes. Right. And, um, but I got a lot of karma points. And so when thinking about that and thinking about all the different people who have are the receiving end of all the similar phone calls, start thinking about like, well, if we can create a community to like raise the value of the industry, but also create a community where we can actually help others and, and also like leverage kind of the intelligence and perspective that we like the collective we have gained over time, um, that could be pretty interesting. So Mixing Board also does things in addition to community stuff. We also do things like help source, um, uh, you know, potential candidates for, for jobs, for example. So we combine our networks to be able to like help people find full-time employees, consultants, fractional interim, interim like leads. And then we do advisory work and mentorship um, um, for organizations where we either individually or you bring companies to, or bring individuals together to kind of provide provide a sounding board to to different organizations. Um, so it's a it's a new model. It's a little bit weird, um, but you know, as someone who 
founded a tech, you know, co-founded a tech policy communications firm in 2002, you know, it's very on brand. Definitely. Definitely. Um, we've asked a lot of important questions today, but we've won probably the most important question save for last. Will the Giants steal Aaron Judge from the Yankees? I think we might have like an upset in the making here. I think it actually could happen. Um, and I'm sure by the time this podcast runs, I'll be proven wrong. Um, but the I think the Giants can do something. I mean, it will be a very interesting offseason. Uh, and I think Aaron Judge, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know the whole Yankee vibe stuff, but like, I think it could happen. I, I think we'd be surprised. I know it's like about a 10%, just given like basically a 10% chance, but, but I, I think it's probably closer to like, if they want it for 10 years. They can, they, they can have them. Yeah. I mean, you know, Josh, I would just love to like, you know, I, I feel like somehow if you can segue into like some very bonds, you know, conversation here, it would just be perfect to end it. <laughs> Well, well, Sean, thanks so much for joining us today. You know, there are very few times in life when you could be the first. You're now added to the list of <laughs> Sir Edmund Hillary, Neil Armstrong, Amelia Earhart, Sean Garrett. Thanks for being the first awesome, guest. Awesome, guys. Well, I appreciate podcast. it. Good, good, good luck to you guys. Good luck to the podcast. Good luck to good luck to what you guys are up to. And I'm, I'm stoked that, you know, you're carrying the torch and, you know, the 463 torch in another form. And you've built it. You made it better, bigger, and, and more so all the more power to you thanks so much all right cheers guys talk to you that was a fascinating conversation with sean he brought a perspective that um, shows the depth of understanding of what's going on at Twitter and why Elon is uh, shaking things up in ways that are both surprising and concerning. Uh, now we, we turn to our musts. This is how we're going to end every episode. Uh, so what should we be watching, listening to, or reading? Josh, what, what, uh, what should folks be listening to? Yes, this is definitely our most popular recurring segment I've been told on the podcast. For me, must watch right now is, you know, it's the holiday season's upon us, Scott. means only one thing. It's love actually time. I can't believe I didn't start watching that movie till a couple years ago. But as Billy Mack would say, I felt it in my fingers and I felt it in my toes. It's just a great watch. And a bonus movie for those of you out there, The Holiday with Cameron Diaz, Kate Winslet, Jude Law, and Jack Black. You'll thank me. Well, Josh and I never really agree on anything, but I have to agree on Love Actually. It is a fantastic movie. I, and every time it's on, I continue to watch. What's your um, favorite vignette? Uh, well, I love the the guy from England who comes and meets the three girls in the uh -huh. bar in Wisconsin. And my, uh, my brother-in-law is from London. And every time I see him, I say, and how do you pronounce table? And he says, table. It's the same. Uh, for me, my must-watch is a new movie out there. Uh, it's called Glass Onion. Uh, it's actually a Netflix movie that they've aired in theaters for a week. It is a mystery. It is hilarious. And it has the biggest takedown of a tech CEO that I've ever seen. Uh, it's going to become a classic, uh, just a fantastic movie. So go see it in the theaters if you can for this week. Otherwise, uh, catch it on Netflix.
Yeah, we're providing a public service here as well. We don't want to just tell people what to watch. We wanted to tell them what not to watch as well. We would never want our devoted listeners to waste their time. So is there anything you would recommend this week that our listeners should miss? Well, I spent a week with my dad in his house in Oakland. And um, I love my dad, but he has the worst taste in television. So uh, if you can avoid this show for now and ever more, please do. It's called Crossing Jordan. It's with one of the Law and Order star- stars, and it is um, one of the worst written police procedurals ever. So total, it's a total miss. Is it Matt Locke for the 21st century? I wish. That would be better. Really? Well, usually our must for the most part, our must misses are something lighthearted for me this week. Unfortunately, it's not, um, for me, my must miss is nearly any Republican Democrat or politician talking about their answers to America's gun problem. I've never been more pessimistic about their ability to tackle it. I've worked on this issue for, I was introduced to this issue in 2003, unfortunately working with a group from Sandy hook, um, thought things would change then. They haven't changed, and um, most of us have just become numb to it, and admittedly, I have as well, until uh, gun violence came into my backyard, proverbial backyard, a couple weeks ago at University of Virginia. But um, when is it going to be enough, or will it ever be enough? Um, I'm just going to avoid hearing the discussions and the rhetoric and be looking for action, but I'm not going to hold my breath. I, I couldn't agree more. People shouldn't become disillusioned. Write your congressman, write your senator, call them, make sure that they know how important this issue is to you. Our lives depend upon it. Kind of serious for the end of the pod. We're, we're multifaceted, Scott. We're multifaceted. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the On the Verge of podcast. We hope you'll join us again soon. Please feel free to follow us on Twitter at On the Verge of or on LinkedIn at Verge Strategies. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from Verge Strategies, you can follow us on LinkedIn at Verge Strategies and on Twitter at On the Verge of. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Sounds true.